how many people stand at their wedding and look at their about-to-be spouse and go, I hope this ends in divorce? How many people hold their child for the very first time and look down at that little angelic face and think, man, I, I hope I messed this up. How many people show up to class on the first day and think, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I fail this class and have to repeat this grade? How many people show up to the first day of practice and think, I hope I let the team down? How many people start a new job and think, I'm going to try really hard to be bad at this? Well, maybe some people do, but not most of us. Most of us want to do well. We don't like to fail. And we don't want to fail, especially at the important stuff. But what is the important stuff? So some of those were examples of specific instances in your life where you probably don't want to fail. But what about your life in general? How will you know if you've been successful? How will you know if you haven't been successful? And what are you trying to succeed at? In other words, what's your purpose in life? Think about that for just a second. If you had to answer that question, what's your purpose in life, what would your answer be? Because one of the main things that Jesus does for us is he gives purpose to our lives. So think about that as we look at the scripture for the morning, which comes out of Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Right before this, he's been tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and he's moved to Capernaum. We talked about that last, last week. So Jesus is prepared for ministry. He's been tested and found ready. He's put himself in the position he needs to be in to accomplish what God has for him. And then he begins his mission. He begins to accomplish the purpose that he came for. And he does this, the scripture tells us, in two ways. One is proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The second thing he does is he recruits people. Come, follow me. And he does this twice in this passage. Simon and Andrew are bank fishing. And he says, come, follow me. And they leave their nets there on the beach and they follow him. James and John, they're in the boat with their dad getting ready to fish. And Jesus called them, presumably saying the same thing, come follow me. And they leave their boat and their dad, and they followed him. And that's actually a great example of what repentance looks like. We've talked about repentance a lot. The kingdom of God has come near, and that changes everything. So you need to change the way that you live. That's what it means to repent, change the way you live. And they do. Peter and Andrew left their nets. James and John left their father in the boat, and they followed. That's what repentance looks like. You do something different in response to a new piece of information. So right off the bat, Jesus tells us the most important things he's come to do, what his purpose is. Proclaim the presence of the kingdom of God and develop disciples, regroup people. 
So now let's go a little bit deeper into the story and make some observations. First, Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is the number one priority Jesus has, is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Basically, Jesus says, God's here with you. God has seen your need. And not only has he seen your need, but God cares about your need. God knows everything, including you, is broken. And he's setting about to fix it in a here and now fashion, but also in an ultimate forever fashion. So Jesus is talking about how the God of the universe enters into your life filled with care and compassion and a desire to change things. So how does he bring that about? How does he make those changes? What is, how does he inaugurate the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus does it through his life, the example that he leads, the way that he shows us what God is like, what God's priorities are. He does it through his death on the cross where he breaks the power of sin and death and by the resurrection and then being raised to live forever next to God and come back and rescue us ultimately. The witness to the truth of all of that, though, is the reality of changed lives. So in response to the presence of the kingdom of God and as an outcome of what Jesus does for us, Jesus is developing a new community. His first recorded action is to gather a group of followers who commit themselves to a change of lifestyle repentance, which involves them joining Jesus in his mission and his purpose. And if you look at the rest of the Gospels, from now on the stories are not about Jesus alone. They're all stories about Jesus and his disciples until the very end. It's the story of the Messiah, but also of the Messianic community the people that are being formed by Jesus and around Jesus. And this is Jesus's primary intention, to form a community of people who are living into the reality that the kingdom of God is among us. Now, if you think about Jesus wanting to inaugurate the kingdom of God or bring the kingdom of God among us, it seems to me that the most obvious way that Jesus could have brought that kind of change would have been to overthrow the government. But Jesus doesn't overthrow the government. That is patently obvious throughout the Gospels. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in doing that. And ultimately, it's probably why Judas ends up betraying him, because Judas wanted the government overthrown. And he thought Jesus was the ticket for that, because that seems to be the obvious way to change things, overthrow the government. But Jesus isn't interested in that. And so Judas, I think, tries to force the issue, but it doesn't work because Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in changing the government. Instead, Jesus came to change people. And one of the interesting things about the ways that Jesus changes people is that he doesn't coerce them. And maybe that's why he doesn't change the government. Because maybe governments are coercive at some level. Or maybe it's because governments are temporary. They come and go. And Jesus has something to do that's going to last forever. But for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't seem that interested in governments or changing them. Now, I think, as followers of Jesus, we should participate in government. I think that we should be involved at all levels. I think we should vote. I think we should participate in civil, civic discussions. But I have a lifetime experience knowing 
that you can't make people do what they don't want to do. You might get compliance, but that will come with bitterness and anger. I think we see that playing out in some of the social issues of the day. I also know that changed hearts lead to changed lives, and changed lives lead to changed behavior. I think that's the better way to go. I also think there might be a caution there about getting too involved in governmental change. I don't know. I've only known one uh, congressman, and some of you did too, Bert Talcott. I respected him enormously. And, and one day we were talking about, it was back in 2012, I guess, and Mitt Romney was running for president. And I talked about how interesting it would be. You know, we'd never had a Mormon president before. It almost seems naive now. Um, and I thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting to have a Mormon president? And Bert said to me, in all my time in government, I have never been stabbed in the back by a Mormon. I've been stabbed in the back multiple times by Christians. And I thought, there are pressures that come with governing. We see the lure of power. And I think it's way too easy to get caught up in the power and the prestige of the governmental position. So I think we need to be careful how we engage with government. And maybe that's why Jesus doesn't change it. He goes to change people instead. And I think that Jesus chose the harder thing, changing people. Jesus forms this community of people whose lives have been changed by an encounter with him. And this community in the power of the resurrection and with the enablement of the Holy Spirit lives into the presence and the reality of the kingdom of God where God is re renewing and redeeming everything. And he's chosen to do this by building a group of people, making a new community, live into the reality of the Lordship of Jesus here and now, anticipating the day there and then when it will be brought to completion. And then we'll live in a new earth and God will dwell among us, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. That's what Jesus' purpose is, to bring those things about, to transform our hearts and our lives like that. So if that's what Jesus' purpose is, is Jesus successful at doing that? Well, I would argue stunningly so. Everything has changed because of Jesus. History is divided into two, before him and after him. Billions of lives have been changed. The course of civilization has been altered. Untold acts of charity and care, innumerable institutions that have changed the lives of billions of people can all be traced back to the Jesus movement, Jesus and the community that he developed. Now, tragically, it's not hard to find abuse or hypocrisy or times when the church or church people have not lived up to the Lord that it professes to serve. Those are real, and they're tragic. And trust me, every story you have about a bad church experience, I can beat that. But I still believe in the church, because I have far more examples of changed lives and hope and generous, gracious living than I do of people who failed miserably. As you look at what Jesus came to do, proclaim the kingdom of God, develop disciples, recruit people, create this community. He never strayed from what his purpose was. Now to develop this community, Jesus says, come follow me. 
And I want to look at two different aspects of that. We need to unpack it a little bit because I think that we take this and remove it from historical context and almost make it like a comic book thing or a myth. Because he comes, he walks along, and he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. And in response to the call of Jesus, follow me, they dramatically leave everything. I mean, they drop their nets. They leave their dad sitting in the boat. And I can just picture the look on Zebedee's face when he thought they were going to spend the day fishing. And they just I mean, dump the nets and maybe jump into the water. And there sits Zebedee all alone. And so we look at this. Jesus says, follow me. They drop everything and they follow him. And I think we almost universally go, wow, I, I could never do that. I have too many responsibilities. I'm not at a good place for that. And honestly, I'm not that spiritual. And we dismiss the story of, for not having a practical value for us. And because we think, well, we could never do that. That would never apply to us. We kind of take ourselves off the hook of what the story is really talking about. And we think, well, we can't really follow Jesus that way, so I'm not going to interact with that come follow me statement. But let's look at the larger story. So they drop everything, and then we feel like they follow Jesus. They wander off into this wilderness where they sit around a campfire for three years, and away from everything they know and love. But that's not what happened. We know they still lived at home. They were still in that area. They probably still fished a lot of mornings. And every time Jesus wanted a boat to go out on the Sea of Galilee, which he did a number of times, I'm thinking it was Zebedee's boat that they were in. So, it's not like they just dropped everything and left everyone and everything in more than a metaphorical sort of way. Primarily what they did was they changed their posture. They reprioritized their lives. They changed their identities. Their primary identity after that was not fisherman, but follower of Jesus. Jesus comes, says, come and follow me. And now you fishermen You'll be fishing for people. And I think that's so important. And I don't want us to miss that. They're fishermen. That's what they do. So what Jesus says to them is, you're going to keep doing what you do, but with a different purpose. I'm going to take your God-given gifts and your God-given talents, and I'm going to put them to use for the kingdom. And I think that changes things for us. Because now the story is not drop everything and wander off into the wilderness, forsake all of your responsibilities, you know, uh, forget the promises you've made. The story is change your posture and begin to live as first and foremost a follower of Jesus. And that I think we can do. And I think that we are very much on the hook for that. The other aspect of this come follow me is the challenge of Jesus himself. I think we would like to read the passage, come to me. I accept you just the way you are and I love you and I'll brush the dirt off of you and send you off to do whatever you want with my blessing. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says, come follow me. Now, we like the love and the mercy of God, but any way you slice it, Jesus is very challenging. Jesus is incredibly controversial 
because Jesus comes to change us. Jesus attacks our assumptions, and we don't like change by and large. Jesus comes to make us more like him and less like what we used to be and less like what our culture, even sometimes our Christian cultures, looked like. And that's the whole thing that we discovered in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We are learning to live according to a wildly different ethic. Turning your cheek, loving your enemies, including the outcasts, sharing your resources, living without worrying about tomorrow. I mean, that's tough stuff if you take Jesus seriously. Even the disciples at one point said, this is a really hard saying. And it's hard because Jesus is so different from us. The kingdom of God is so different from us and our reality. I, I talked to somebody this week who's been listening to all these sermons and whom I respect deeply, and they said to me, we want to hear from Paul. We don't really want to hear what Jesus has to say. And I'm like, that resonates because Paul we mostly agree with. We know that we need to step up our game a little bit, but Jesus, Jesus is hard. Because Jesus is so confrontational against our values. But Jesus says, follow me, not be mildly interested in what I have to say. And follow me literally is come behind me. It's a technical term for how one becomes a disciple. You walk behind somebody and you watch them and you learn for them. Watch what he does. Do what I do. Become like me by just being with me. That's what following means. So Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, James and John, and then they had to make a choice. They could keep doing what they've always done and getting what they've always got, or they could accept Jesus's call and follow him. And right away, they realize that Jesus has something that they didn't have before. Peter identifies it a little bit later when he says, you have the words of eternal life. You connect us to something deeper. We find God through you. We find hope in you. We find meaning in you. And when they come to that realization, they have a choice to make. And the most sensible, rational thing to do, confronted with that choice, was to leave their nets and follow him. They changed their definition of success. It wasn't how many fish they caught, it was how closely they followed Jesus and how available they were for his plans and purposes. I think it's also worth noting that they were not really disciples of Jesus yet, but they passed the first test. They obeyed him. They went after him. And I think this is an important point because discipleship is a process. We grow into becoming like Jesus, but the first step is always to obey the call. So the call comes not just to them, the call also comes to us. And the call is to be on Jesus's mission, following Jesus's purpose. Jesus comes to fishermen and he redirects their fishing. He uses their gifts and their talents that they have and he repurposes them for the kingdom of God. So maybe you're a teacher or a student or you're a pilot or a financial advisor. And here Jesus saying, and now you're going to do that for me. So maybe you work for the county. How do you be a building inspector for Jesus? You're in law enforcement. That's great. How do you become a police officer for Jesus? 
What ministry opportunities do you come across in your daily work? Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. Great. What meaning does your day have besides laundry? How are you advancing the kingdom of God in your family, in your social circles, through whatever free time you have? The point is that in response to Jesus, we're all in full-time ministry. We're all on mission. And if we're following Jesus, that's our purpose. Now, you don't have to be fully formed. None of us are. You just have to be willing. Jesus issued the call, and they went. They had three years' worth of input, and then they failed spectacularly. But eventually, they got the hang of it and went on to change the world. Jesus took fishermen, and he had them use their gifts and their talents for him. He's calling you to be you, not someone else, but to do what you do for him. I love Dallas Willard's quote when he was talking about this very passage about becoming a follower of Jesus. Willard says, I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. So what does that look like for you? How do you be, how do you be a whatever you are for Jesus? Maybe make choices to care. I don't think you have to make the choice to be weird. In fact, Please don't do that. What if you were the one person in your office that didn't gossip or complain? Trust me, you would stand out. What if you were the one person that didn't cut corners, who could always be relied upon to do what you said you would do when you said you would do it? Trust me, you would stand out. What if you intentionally were interested in people's lives? Trust me, you would stand out. I've told this story before, but it's one of the greatest management stories that I know. Because, you know, you reach a certain level in your company or your business or whatever, and perks come with that. And one of the perks is you don't have to hang around with people who aren't in the C-suite or whatever. Uh, but my friend Don was the publisher of a newspaper, you know, back when they had those. And he had a parking place right up front that opened up to a private entrance for him. And every day, he, he parked way around the building back in the employee lot. And the reason that he did that was because then he had to walk through the entire plant. So he was seen by people. And not only did he see people, but he stopped and talked to every single person that was on the way. He knew their names. He knew what was going on in their lives. He cared about them, and they knew it. And Dom is a Christian guy. And people would share prayer requests with him, and he would pray for them, and then they would check on how they were doing. I mean, it just seems a really simple thing. You know, if you're anything like me, you're already running late. You like the idea that you can park close. You don't have to hunt for a parking lot, but think of everything you miss. And then put that into almost any daily situation that you're in. There's things that you could do that would be a minor inconvenience that could make a huge difference for the way that Jesus could leverage what you're doing where you are. This is a time of new beginnings. It's kickoff Sunday for us. And it's September, school is starting, and even though the calendar starts in January, most people's lives start in September. So it's a chance to do things again, to take some new steps, to reevaluate. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to one of my buddies here at the church. And he was talking about uh, another friend of ours who has just really made an impact in people's lives. And my buddy said, 
I haven't accomplished everything that I wish I could have accomplished. I have not had the type of influence that this other guy had had. And he's like, but I think it's too late for me. I'm like, it's not too late. Whatever life stage you're in, whether you're really, really young, whether you're retired, whether you're living in a retirement home, whether you've got little kids, everything, it is never too late to decide to have a purposeful existence and to do the things that you do, but for the purpose of moving the ball down the field for God. It's never too late. This is a great time to start reorganizing your life to pick up the purposes of Jesus so that you can have that kind of impact. So what do you do? How do you do that? How do you start out? How do you, how do you learn to listen to the call of Jesus to, to follow him? How do you figure out ways to follow Jesus more deeply? Well, I think first of all, you need to create the space to listen. You've got to be in the car. Even if you're taking the kids to school, you've got to drive home. You've got 10 minutes. You exercise or you do something, and instead of listening to a podcast or something else, what about listening to a, a prayer or listening to other music? Well, another friend of mine has what she calls five minutes in the chair. It's how she begins every day. She takes five minutes and she sits in a chair with a cup of coffee and her Bible, and that's time where she can listen to God. Create some space in the margin that you already have. You can create more margin, great. But everybody has a little bit of margin where they can begin to learn to listen. Join a small group, get a mentor. The more I talk to people, the more I realize that very few people have real friends. Very few people have, have folks in their lives that they can really talk about the deep issues of their lives with. The pains, the hurts, the dreams, the failures. Find somebody that you can talk about those things with. People who will remind you of the redemptive power of God. Serve. We're gonna give you a million opportunities today to serve in the church and outside of the church. Find one of those because you'll find that participating in the purpose of God to be transformational. Megan started school a couple of weeks ago, like most of you did, who are in school or teaching or as, as students. And um, there are already so many high highs and so many low lows. And I was thinking about this the other day. We have some pretty sad moments at our house. Uh, a lot because of what Megan does for a living and sometimes because of what I do for a living. We have some lows at our house as we interact with other people. But we have far more great moments where we see people who put the words of Jesus into action and make a difference in the world. And it's a thing of beauty when that happens. And it's a great measure of success. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what is your purpose in life? Number two, what do you need to reprioritize in your life to more fully follow Jesus? And number three, what one thing can you do to be on mission in your daily life? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. 
You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.